Good morning. All right, let's take up all of our time to have God kind of renew our minds in the Word. So take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, and I'm going to draw your attention to the fill in the blank. Jesus, when facing his disciples who were facing their mortality, he said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And I'm going away to prepare a place for you that you may be where I am. What he meant was heaven is for real. We must live every day as if that is so. That we must believe that because of what Jesus Christ has said, that not only is our future secure, our future is more glorious than our present. Is that right? The fill in the blank in front of you is this. Heaven is as sure as earth. Heaven is as sure as earth. As much as this is real, heaven is real. And we need to live as if it's so. Where we are at in history as we're teaching through it is Jesus Christ has come back from the dead. And he's visited already the women. He's already visited two of the larger disciple group as they were on their way to a village called Emmaus. And somehow he's also visited Peter, Simon Peter, the one who was kind of the ringleader of the team. And that's where we pick up the story. And it begins like this. We'll take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, combine it together in a blended gospel study, throw it up on the screens, and it looks like this. And they, the Emmaus disciples... They rose that same hour after Jesus had disappeared in front of them. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday. All right, we got to stop. Here's why. Integrity moment for me in my teaching. Last week, I said, now these guys go back and they talk to them and they don't believe them. I don't know whether they went that day or whether they went the next day. That's because I didn't read the next line in the Bible. So real quick note in case you're taking it, right? If you're going to teach on something, you should read the rest of the story before you talk about it publicly. All right. Anyway, that's just for me. They rose that same hour on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, and they returned to Jerusalem, which is approximately seven miles away. I'm assuming they're running. If you know that your team is back home hurting, still confused, and you just saw Jesus alive, you want them to know. So they bail out as fast as they can. It's after dinner time. They go to tell the rest of the team. And they went and found, because the disciples were hiding, they went and found where the disciples were, the 11, which was the new name for the original 12, because Judas is gone. The 11 and those who were with them, of which will make up the majority of the 120 at Pentecost, They had all gathered together. They were not isolated, but they had gathered together and the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. All right, what's this whole doors lock thing? Well, this is a legitimate threat. Jesus had just been murdered. He was branded a heretic and a man of treason. The religious leaders took out the ringleader. They now want everyone else who's perpetuating this because they want the movement gone. So at any moment, they could come storming through the door, arrest everyone, and kill everyone. 
The disciples knew the threat, so they locked the doors and they stayed back in hiding. And so after being let in, these disciples from Emmaus, and I would suggest to you, Simon Peter is coming with them in this. It's, they said, the Lord has risen indeed. Man, guys, it's real. We saw him. I mean, there we were in Emmaus and, and he was setting up dinner. And the minute he broke the bread, boom, he was gone. We were like, yeah, I knew it was Jesus. And we had to run here and tell you. And he has appeared to Simon. Now, Simon Peter, we all know him, right? So when did Jesus appear to him? That story is nowhere in scripture. Why in the world would you not show that one? Why would you not write down about how the guy who denied Jesus three times just had a personal visit, an individual visit from his Lord, his best friend, and you don't write it down? Come on, man. What kind of chronicle are you, right? What kind of historian are you? And I wonder whether or not this was the case. Mark, who writes for Peter, I imagine the conversation went like this. Hey, Mark, um, at that time, Jesus came to me. All right, well, tell me about that. Well, actually, can you put your pen down for a second? Uh, I'm going to talk a lot about how he reinstated me into ministry and a lot of that other stuff, but that one was kind of private. That was personal between him and I. I mean, I was so crushed about having betrayed him and he was so gentle with me and it was just kind of a restoration of my spirit. I don't think we're going to include that one in the book. All right. Now, we know that he appeared to him because Paul later chronicles it as well and says he appeared to Simon, but there's no mention of what happened that day. All right. Maybe it's a little too personal. They said, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what had happened on the road to Emmaus and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread, but they, the bigger group, did not believe them. Now, that's such a buzzkill, isn't it? I mean, you come in, you're like, yeah, man, miracle, woo! And then everyone's like, nope, you're a liar. Wah, wah, right? And there's nothing, what else are you going to say? I mean, you can't say no seriously. I mean, how many times can you say that? If they're not going to believe you, they're not going to believe you. There's nothing you can do about it. And so it was kind of crushing to their spirit. I don't know to what degree any of them got rocked by that going, man, did I get that one wrong? I mean, I respect all these guys. They're telling me I'm wrong. I don't know what that was like for them. It says afterward. Now, I would suggest to you that this is when the core disciples were by themselves. I think everybody else went home. Why do I think that? Because of what's about to occur. I think everyone else went home. This is a late night. They're having drinks or snack or whatever it is. They're still around the table. But now there are only 10 of them. So Judas is gone. We know that. But you also find out Thomas is not there. And so now we have 10 left. All right. So they're just kind of by themselves. I would imagine that they're having conversations about what they should do as a team. Hey guys, everybody's got all this stuff. Peter, you said you saw Jesus. John, you are totally convinced at the empty tomb that he's alive. Okay, well, I just need you guys to know the rest of the eight of us, we haven't seen anything. And I want to believe you, I do. But this has been really hard on me. Everything is chaotic. Everybody has a different story. They're all saying Jesus said this and Jesus said that and there was angels and everything. I don't know what to do. 
So uh, all I know is, are we moving forward in the ministry? Are we going back to fishing? What are we doing? Right? Afterward, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself appeared to the 11, even though there was only 10, as they were reclining at table. He stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. All right. Right there, super important. And I wonder whether or not that is the reason some of you have come to church. I think this might be a message right here, if I stopped right here, of the whole reason why the Holy Spirit invited you today. Here's why. The last time they saw Jesus, they had bailed out. They were afraid. They ran away, handed him over to the authorities, and they killed him publicly. I don't know if you know anything about combat, or survivor's remorse, or anything to where you're in an intense situation with a group of people and you live and they do not. But what it creates is guilt. What it creates is the what if scenarios. What it creates is I could have done this and you replay it a thousand times. They were all going through that. And then Jesus shows up. I would imagine that not only were they scared at the whole visitation thing, but I think there's probably a wondering whether or not he was going to blast them right away. Nice. You left me with everybody else. Is that nice job team? I thought we were all in this together. What are you doing? You didn't defend me. You keep saying, oh Lord, we're ready to die for you. Obviously you weren't. Is that what he said? Because that's what they replayed in their mind a hundred times. So how did he show up? He used the Greek version of shalom that means I want all good things for you. That was his first intro. Right off the bat, guys, I want all good things for you. I know you are all wrapped up in your head about how you have been failing. I just want you to know I'm not. I want you to understand that I'm never going to bring up the fact that you guys bailed out. I'm never going to bring up your weakness. I get it. I'm the one that created you. Your weakness and inability does not surprise me. I'm not taken off guard and saying, I can't believe you failed. I know what I made. Now, are we going to have dialogues about how to live victoriously and how to walk with me and how to be connected to the spirit? Yeah, we're going to have all that. But what we're not going to do is play this game of self-condemnation. That's what we're not going to do. So I just want to tell you before we even get started, I want the best for you. Here's why this is so important for some of us. Some of us have been playing this week in our minds. We finally get to church. We didn't even know if we were going to make it here. We finally get to church and then we're finally locked into the groove. We're eventually beginning to mean the songs that we sing. We're starting to get into the whole message. And then we start playing the regret game. And the the regret game goes like this for me, right? As, As the pastor, the regret game goes like this. Man, I wish I would have prayed more so there was more victory today. I wish I would have not sinned as much. I wish I would have not been as rebellious as much. I wish I would have been more in line with the Lord. I wish I would not have so much distraction. I wish I would have accomplished more. And I play a whole litany of things in my mind about how I wish this moment would have been more rich if I would have been more on. I don't know if any of you play that. 
But here's what I need you to know today. Jesus doesn't play that. He starts his conversations with you of saying, before we begin, I want all good things for you. We're in this together. It's all right. I want you to understand what it means to live in the grace of God. I want you to understand what it means to truly be forgiven. I want you to see that he has a whole different view of your identity than you do. And I want you to realize he's not constantly reflecting on your failure as much as you are, right? So some of you just came to church to hear that. Peace be with you. I want all good things for you, Jesus says, all right? But they were startled and they were frightened and they thought that they were seeing a ghost. Wait, why is a ghost the default? Why is resurrection not the main option, but ghost is? I mean, doesn't that seem a little weird? In their ministry, they have seen Jesus raise the dead. So why wouldn't you default to, you got up? Nope, we immediately go to, you're a ghost. That's not more likely than the other. Okay, so why would they think that? Because of this premise. What you hear the most of, you believe to be true. Here's why. In the Jewish ancient culture, there was a lot of talk about ghosts and spirits. And so from a kid, they've been told that those are legit. Even It completely contradicted what Jesus had talked about, but they immediately went to the normal voice that was in their head. Why is that so important? Because if we say something enough, we begin to believe it, right? You all have heard that. If you start lying and you say the lie long enough, you'll start to believe it yourself. If someone keeps saying something about you for long enough, you start to believe that it's real. It doesn't make it real. You are creating it to be real. That's a problem. Because what if it isn't real? What if you have constantly been reaffirmed by repetition about something that is bogus? What if in your life you have began to hear things like, you are a failure? And now all you hear is, I am a failure. You have reassessed and said, no, I agree with them. I am a failure. And then you have repeated it after that over and over and over again. But what if you're wrong? What if you're not a failure and Jesus says otherwise? The other thing that I think is fascinating is that they immediately went to ghosts. Do y'all know that ghosts don't exist? Okay, maybe, maybe this is another reason why I came to church. Let me, let me pull Hollywood away from Bible. Okay. Uh, Whether you know it or not, Hollywood's theology is not accurate. Okay. So here's the deal. Ghosts don't exist. Ghosts are disembodied spirits of people that are in limbo and don't get to go to their next place. That's garbage. There is no such thing. The Bible says that it is appointed once for a man to die and after this, the judgment. It does not say that there's an allowance for us to be stuck and go, I got to finish this pottery before I can move on. (laughs) Right? That's not real. Here's the other popular one. I have to solve a murder. Wait, what? Why why do you have to solve a murder before you can move on? Uh, There's dead people over there. Okay, yeah. There is no such thing as I'm stuck here. I got nowhere to go. That does not work. Now, here's what is real. Demons are legit. 
Angels are legit. There are heavenly beings and supernatural stuff going all over the place. Ghosts are not. All right. So let's be real clear, because otherwise we think that somehow there is heaven, hell, earth and limbo. There is no such thing as limbo. That's not right. Okay. so they think they see a ghost. It's totally not true. So Jesus has to convince them otherwise. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Meaning, come on, guys, it's me. Are we really going down the ghost road again? See my hands and feet. I am. That's the same version of I am that John uses in other pieces. I am ego a me, right? Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. What a cool invitation. Hey, check me out. Figure it out. Okay. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, that's the Bible's way of saying they were tripping out. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Okay. This is super cool of Jesus. This is just how kind and sweet and how patient he is. Right? So he's like... He's like, guys, I'm real. I'm, it's me. Look, I don't, I have flesh and blood, right? You got all that stuff. All right. Okay. You guys still aren't getting it. Okay. Um, 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 Andrew, Andrew, can I grab that Vandy camp fish stick thingy that's on your plate, right here? Bring it to me. Bring it to me. Okay. Look, guys, I'm eating. Look, nom, 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 nom. and it's falling down. Look, oh, ghosts don't eat like this. Look, oh. why, why is he doing that to get him to calm down? Oh, you're right. Ghosts don't eat fish sticks. <laughs> okay, well, if that's helped, all right. We can do that. A couple things about that. One is Jesus just showed up in a locked room. That's pretty awesome. That's straight up sci-fi, right? I mean, whether you want to call it that he like he moved through the wall or he teleported, I don't know how big of a nerd you are, but it's pretty awesome, right? So in other words, his new glorified body was contained and the christianity teaches bodily resurrection it does not teach disembodied spirit we're not hovering orbs we're not little floating mists forever oh i love your blue i'm kind of a mist too right that's not that's not how it's going to be we actually have containment we can do things we can interact with our world just like we interact with this world but it's not going to be the identical same you're not going to have the frustration that you carry in this body where because in this body in this life we have something amiss something's wrong it's that our spirits and there's two parts of the human being there's spirit and body our spirits are built to live forever but our bodies keep failing us and so we keep having things shut down and we keep getting disappointed because our spirits are going no 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 it's supposed to last forever but it's not in heaven that frustration is removed because we are now built for the world that we are in, right? Everyone's like, no. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. All right, so now they're all calmed down. They didn't hear a word he said the first time, so he has to re-say the entire thing over again. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. They're like, oh, yeah, you want the best for me. He's like, I just said that. Anyway, and then he says a couple very important phrases that I want you to lock in your spirit. Number one, as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 
Okay, this is very, very deep and very important. As the Father has sent me, how did the Father send the Son? He equipped him with everything he needed, put him on mission, and he finished because he was empowered to do so. As the Father, in the same manner that the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I'll get you what you need, I'll equip you, and we'll make sure that we get it done. I recently had, uh, this last week, I had lunch with another pastor in the area. And we're sitting there at brunch, right? It was too late for breakfast, too early for lunch. We're sitting there at brunch. And uh, I wanted to know a little bit more about him. And I found out that he had spent the majority of his life in missions. Now, I had not. He had been all over the world. And, and so I said, hey, Pastor Derek, so tell me a little bit about this. What do I need to know about missions? And he goes, well, I don't know. What do, you, what do you know right now? And I said, well, just kind of the concept of why missions is so important to you. And he looked at me funny. And he goes, well, all right, I'll, let me say it this way. We serve ascending God. The Father sent the Son. The Son sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sends the church. We're always a sent people. That's what God does. So for us, there's not a point of saying, hey, should I go somewhere? It's of course I'm going somewhere. I'm a sent people. That's what I do. I go out into my neighborhood. I go out in my job. I go out into my school. I go out into the nations. I go out. It's my definition of what Christians are is we are sent people in a family on mission. I was like, dang, that's good. I wish I thought of that. And so I said to him, I go, I go, man, Derek, that's deep. That's deep. Where did you get that? He goes, the Bible. Total smart alley. This is why we got along. We serve ascending God. We are sent people. That is part of our DNA. We will find agitation in our spirits if we do not go on the mission of God. It's what we were built to do. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. In other words, I'm sending you into God-sized tasks. So what do you need in order to complete God-sized tasks? That's the second line. And when he said this, he breathed. Now it says he breathed on them in the passage we're looking at, but on them is not in the Greek, it's implied. He breathed and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So what do you need to do? God-sized tasks, the Holy Spirit. You can't do one without the other. So what was happening here? Well, first, let me tell you how deep this is. Jesus breathed. When is the last time recorded, especially in our series, that we recently just covered that Jesus was noticed for breathing? Do you remember this? It was on the cross. Remember the centurion said, after I saw what happened and how he breathed his last, I knew he was the Messiah. What did we say was different about Jesus and how he breathed? When God breathes, things are created. Okay? Give you an example. It says, and Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my what? Spirit. 
And then after he said it's finished, he gave up his spirit, right? And he breathed his last. Here's why all that is tied in. The word in both Hebrew and Greek for breath and spirit are the same. We just need to understand spirit and breath are the same. There's a, there's a tie in there. It's the same concept in Genesis 2 where it says that God shaped Adam from the dirt. Then what? Leaned over him and breathed life into him and he came, became a living being. Okay, so what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is breathing out. When God breathes out, things come to life. He is igniting his men. Now he's got more for them. 50 days from this moment, he will have the Holy Spirit come like a wrecking ball on Pentecost. That's when they're going to get the charge. That's when they're going to get the power. But right here, it's more about identification. Right here, it's about vitality. Everyone goes, well, is this the filling of the baptism? I mean, is this the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Filling of the Holy Spirit? What is this? I have no idea. Nobody knows. Everybody's guessing. It appears to be an identification piece where he's saying, I'm just breathing out me. You need more of me in order to get done what you need to get done. And you go, well, maybe it was the official time. And that's why the apostles were all able to do miracles. Hold up. Thomas isn't even here. He missed the entire thing. And Thomas did miracles. So what are we talking about? A lot of that hit at Pentecost. Thomas was at Pentecost, but he wasn't here. All right couple other pieces he says this if you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven them if you withhold forgiveness from any it is withheld this one verse has caused the death of hundreds of thousands of people it has caused the schism of many a church why because you now see a core tenant that separates a view of Catholicism from a view of Protestantism. Why? Right here in the verse, what it appears to say on the surface is that God said, all right, church, leaders of my church, I have forgiveness and I have it in a tank. What I would like to do is hand it to you. And if you think anyone needs forgiveness, you can hand out a little bit at a time. I'm not going to do it anymore. You guys do it for me. You determine who gets forgiven and who doesn't. That's called the absolution. Is that what it's saying? Because that is where you get ideas about the vicar or the uh, confession or the priest being able to absolve sin, stuff like that, right? That's where it all comes from. So is that what it says? Because it sure looks like it on the surface. Here's the problem with that in my opinion. I don't believe it's accurate in the Greek. The most accurate translation of this passage from scholars is this. Whosoever sins you forgive shall have already been forgiven them. And whosoever sins you retain or do not forgive shall have already not been forgiven them. You go, I don't understand. Here's what he's saying. You're not making the decision. The decision is being made. You're just delivering the message. We know the premise that you cannot forgive the sins of someone else. In other words, I can't forgive for my friend who violated you. The one that is violated has to do the forgiving. You can't vicariously do it through somebody else. 
So whenever we sin, God is violated. He's the one that has to forgive. The church doesn't get to make that call. That is God's business. So what does the church do? They're ambassadors of the kingdom to deliver the message. So what is he saying? He's saying, church, I'm giving you a very serious responsibility. I am giving to you the message of the gospel. The gospel says how sins are forgiven. Church, you have it. The rest of the world does not. If you don't spread it, they don't get it. Do you understand? Therefore, here's what I want you to do. I want you to boldly go out and proclaim how forgiveness of sins works. If you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the gospel says, and make him the master of your life where you repent of what you do and hand your life over to him to take care of, you will be forgiven. You don't, that's the message of the church. You don't have to go back and go, I'm going to go check with God and see whether or not you'll be forgiven by the gospel. You know they're forgiven by the gospel. It's a fact. In the same way, you also can tell them, if you reject Jesus Christ, there is no other means by which you're saved. I'm telling you right now, I didn't make it up. The Bible says it. That the only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. Therefore, without Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sins and there is only damnation to follow. Therefore, the church has a message of declaring, this is how your sins are forgiven. This is how they are not. That is our message. A lot of ambiguity has led to a lot of difficulty throughout history on this passage. Now Jesus gets to the correction point. And everyone's like, I knew there was going to be a correction point. He's going to get all mad at us because we bailed out in the garden. Nope, doesn't mention it. Here's what actually ticks him off. It says, and he rebuked them. That word is only used here of Jesus for his disciples. This is a really strong word. So Jesus is actually really, really agitated. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So what agitates Jesus? A hard heart. He said, guys, I even came to Peter and I saw him, I talked to him, and I said, go tell your brothers. The other guys on the road to Emmaus, I saw them, I talked to them, and I said, go tell your brothers. The women in the crew, I saw them, I talked to them, and I said, go tell your brothers. And you rejected all of them. What is wrong with you? What, everything has to be one-on-one for us to move forward. You cannot rely and trust what I'm telling them. Are you saying that we have no community, that we have no trust, that we have no relationship in the church, that we can't convey messages to each other, that you're only going to believe it if it happens to you? Come on, that's not right. And he got pretty agitated. A couple things happened that day. One of them was what a beautiful lesson for them to learn about being a missionary. Here's why. The rest of their lives, they're going to go out and tell people a message that the other people don't have any proof for, and they have to take their word for it. But they didn't even take the word of the other folks. So when they get to display the gospel, they're going to go, Jesus Christ came to life. And they're going, no, he didn't. Yeah, actually he did. I saw him. Well, I didn't see him. You know what? I felt that exact same way. 
I totally understand. I have understanding for you. I'm not trying to shove it down your throat. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just saying I understand where you're coming from. However, there has to come to a place where I need you to trust me on this. I was there. I saw it. Well, I don't believe you. I know. I know. But I need you to take that in your heart and I need you to pray about it and figure it out and see whether or not God is really speaking to you. Do you understand how they now have compassion and empathy for the people they're talking to? Because they rejected it. The the disciples were not a bunch of idiots that were easily gullible and they just believed everything. These are critically thinking men. And they had a really hard time coming to faith. All right. So do the rest of the people they have to minister to. Here's the other thing that I think is important to learn. When does healthy skepticism turn into just hardness of heart? I will always be pro this idea of, hey, tear Christianity apart, ask the deep questions. If you can tear it apart, it must not be that good, right? I mean, I'm that guy who, who is saying, hey, bring it. Bring all your heat because I need you to own Christianity. But at some point, it's not even healthy skepticism anymore. It's just hard hearts. That's going to leave you separate from God. I just need you to know that. You're not going to experience things from God. You're going to find out Thomas missed out on all that cool stuff because he didn't even show up. He allowed the enemy to isolate him out for whatever reason and didn't think it was important to be there. Maybe he was up in his own head. I don't know what was going on, but he wasn't here. And so we read about him. Next passage. Now, Thomas, that's Aramaic. In Greek, his name is Didymus. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 core group, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, Jesus keeps showing up when they're in group gatherings. If you're not there, you missed out. I just want to encourage you on this. If something happens here at church and we all start talking about it and you missed it, you're going to have a really hard time with that. Well, I wasn't there. Yeah, well, we all saw it. We all engaged with it. Yeah, but if I wasn't there, it doesn't matter. Here's the problem with being a skeptic. You have to attend every event. You understand what I'm saying? Because you're not going to take anyone else's word for it. So if you want to engage with God, you better be at everything all the time. Because otherwise you need to trust us if we tell you something went down while you were gone. But know that you want to be here. I don't want to miss out on what God has for us. I would hate to know that God broke out among us and I was on vacation. Now, do I have to go on vacation sometimes? Yeah, of course I do. It's healthy. But I want to know that I'm always with where God is at. So for some of us, we're like, should I go to church? Should I not? Yeah, you should. Because you don't want to miss out on what God's doing. And if everybody starts going, man, he really moved there and it was powerful. And have you heard this message and blah, 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 right? All that stuff. You're not going to believe any of it if you weren't here. Hmm. He was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples kept telling him, it says in Greek, we have seen the Lord. All his buddies, everybody has seen it now, but him. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's hardcore adamant resistance. 
That's a double negative in Greek. That is, it's never going to happen, guys. That is that, that hard heart of saying, I don't believe what you say, and I'll never believe it without actual proof. Okay, well, if it wasn't for the grace of Jesus showing up, he would have continued on unbelieving. That's a bummer. Um, it says eight days later. Notice it was in group. It was on Sunday. Eight days later, the following Sunday, his disciples were inside again together and Thomas was with them. So let's give the guy a little bit of credit. Hardcore, hard-hearted skeptic. He still showed. All right, right on. Although the doors were still locked, they're still afraid. Actually, they're going to be afraid until Pentecost. And when the Holy Spirit rolls in with boldness, suddenly they're not afraid anymore. But until then, they're afraid. Although the doors were still locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, I want the best for you. Peace be with you. Um, one thing I, I think is super important to touch on before we move forward. There's a really cool concept on why Jesus kept showing up on Sunday. In the Old Testament, the concept followed the pattern of God, which was God worked for six days and on the seventh day, he what? He rested. And that is how the creation account went. And God was doing that as a pattern for his people to follow. And so in the Old Testament, the entire Jewish system of Sabbath is what? We work for six days and on the seventh day we rested. That's the, cov- that's the covenant that he made. But here's what's weird. Christianity shifted everything. And it went from celebrating and worshiping on the Sabbath to worshiping on the first day of the week. Why? You go, well, because Jesus got up on the first day and they wanted to celebrate the resurrection. That was the biggest deal. Yes, but there's a whole nother piece to it. Here's what it is. What did Jesus say on the cross at the end? It is what? Finished. So what work are you going to do in order to get rest? He reversed the entire religious cycle into one of grace. They used to work and do good works and then rest in the religious cycle of the Old Testament covenant. That's not what happens once Jesus got done. When Jesus got done, he did all the heavy lifting. Now our whole walk begins in the rest of what he bought and what he brought and what he gave us and we operate from rest. Amen? That means we are not in a performance-driven religion We are operating in partnership with God because he did all the heavy lifting and we are walking it out. So we begin, we always work from our rest. We start out by acknowledging that we didn't earn our own grace. Jesus gave it to us. We always start out by saying we didn't earn mercy. He gave it to us. We never say things like we're going to go out and save people because he does all the saving. What he did is everything that was important and said, hey, kids, do you want to go harvest and have an adventure? We are referred to in parables as harvesters, which is intriguing because harvesters come in at the end and scoop up the good stuff. Who did all the digging and plowing and all that who did all the um the the raising up who did all the growing that was all god and we got to come into the end and scoop up why because jesus is good at what he does we never operate to earn god's love we operate because we already have god's love 
That's important. Let's close this thing out. It says, then he said to Thomas, now he singles him out. And he said, hey, Thomas, come here for a second. Put your finger here. You see my hands? Put out your hand, place it on my side. As creepy as that is, right? (laughs) Now, what's intriguing about that is he repeats the exact lines back to Thomas, but he wasn't there. Oh, that's weird. Thomas is like, oh, that's weird. That's what I said. I know. That's why I said it. (laughs) Yeah, but you weren't there. Oh, so since you didn't see me, you thought I wasn't there. Come on, seriously? I hear every word you say. This whole business about, well, you know, I said this at home, but I say this at church and somehow they're compartmentalized. Uh, No. Oh, well, Jesus didn't see that one. I had my door shut. (laughs) Oh, really? This whole business about I did this in secret. This was only in my thoughts. At least I didn't say it out loud. Do you all know that that is all exposed to Christ? He knows all that stuff. You're not... You're not hiding anything. And so he repeats back the exact same line. Hey, Thomas, I was listening. I know you're having a hard time. Instead of blasting you right now, I'll give you a chance. All right, let's do this. You need to see me, you need to feel me. Okay, let's do this. I can't do that for everyone, but I'm gonna do it with you as a symbol of all the skeptics to come. Okay? Do not disbelieve, but believe. That in Greek means stop the road you're already going down. Knock it off. Make a U-turn. Turn the car around. You are headed towards this hard-hearted, I'm not going to believe. I don't care what anybody says. I'm my own person. Unless it happens to me, it's not real. You're going so hard down that road. I'm warning you, my son. Knock it off. Turn around. I need you to believe what I say is true. Stop believing what you think is true and listen to my voice. And Thomas answered, my Kyrios, my Lord, my master, and my Theos, my God. Okay, no Jew will call someone God that isn't God. That's called blasphemy. That's why they killed Jesus thinking he was committing blasphemy. There's no way Jesus would allow someone to call him God if he's not who? God. This is one of the clearest statements of the deity of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. Some people are like, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus allowed the worship of his people as God. And if he's not God, that's blasphemy. Jesus Christ is God very clearly. And Thomas figured it out. But notice how Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, oh, have you believed because you've seen me? Oh, now that you got the proof, you believe in me. You know what? Actually, that's awesome. But you want me to tell you what's more awesome? Blessed are those who have not seen me, but they trust me. Why is there a greater blessing to not having proof? Because it demands relationship in its place. Here's what I mean. There are people in this room that if we all had a weird story to tell and they told you, you would believe them and you wouldn't believe other people. Why? Because you have a relationship with them. You trust them. You know their nature. You know their character. And you're willing to say, I believe you. That is called trust. If I always have to give you all the proof, you don't trust me. 
You trust you. And as long as you always need proof, we don't have to have a relationship. But if I say, I'm not giving you proof, I want you to trust me. Have I not demonstrated a solid enough character for you to believe the words that I'm saying? And if you say, I still don't believe, then we do not have a relationship. There is a certain degree where God's word has to be received, whether or not Jesus follows you up and gives you all the proof you want. There's a certain degree of relationship that when he says it, that settles it, right? There's a certain degree of relationship that he's allowed to tell you what is real, not you. There's a certain degree of relationship that says, stop believing this and start believing this. And I don't want to convince you because it's not about you. We keep going, well, God, if you really wanted me to follow you, you should do this. Hold up. Who's the story about you? No, you're a side character. Who's it about Jesus Christ? Whether or not you're on his team is actually the issue. Whether or not you get all the proof you want, I don't know how that's going to go, but I'll tell you this. You need to chase after the one that the story is about. It's not for him to bow down before you. It is for you to get your stuff together and bow down before him. Because he is God and we are not. So I close with this thought. What is he saying to you that means that you have to stop believing this in order to start believing the truth? Is it that you are a failure? Because you've been told that by repetition by a lot of people. And then you took it on and made it your mantra. Do you need to stop it today? Okay, it's, no, it's not helping you. It's not accurate. It's not right. Stop saying that. And start believing what Jesus says about you. Jesus said you were never needed for results. So the results aren't on you. So you can't be a failure. Jesus said success is defined by obedience. Nothing more, nothing less. Are you being an obedient child? If you are, then that is the absolute success. It's not about what money you got or what fame you got or whether you did everything right. That's actually not what you're being judged against. So stop thinking that you know what success is. And start listening to his assessment of you. What is it? Is it, I'll never be free, right? Oh, you know what? You've always done that in your life. You're never going to change. You're never going to change. You're never going to change. You're never going to be free of that. You know what? Once you started in alcohol, you're never going to stop. You're always going to be, right? We hear all that garbage all the time. But what does the Bible say? He who the sun sets free will be what? Free indeed. Therefore, Jesus said, stop listening to that chatter. Stop it. If I say you're free, you're free. If I say I can break anything, I can break anything. If I say there's a new pattern, there's a new pattern. I I don't listen and think that the majority of voices are right. Just listen to the right voice. So what is it for you? There's a reason why God brought you here to stop thinking one way and he will never tell you and command you to do something that he will not empower you to do. If he tells you to stop that pattern of thinking, then you can. You're not hopeless. 
You're not just driven. Your mind doesn't just get to go wherever it wants to go. You're in control. God's in control. You are not driven to and fro. You're not a double-minded person. All that doesn't have to be the case. That God has given you a certain amount of authority, a certain amount of power, a certain amount of self-control to draw it back in line and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And if that is the case, what must we then stop thinking so we can start thinking what Jesus says and allow it to be true for us? Is it identity? Is it worth? Is it that you're loved? Is it that grace is real? I don't know. But that other way of thinking is not okay. Stop it. And start thinking right. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we submit our minds to you. That you're right, Lord. We have for sure been listening to all the voices out there and then we picked it up on ourselves and we played it on replay over and over and over again right now father you're revealing by the power of your holy spirit that it's not right thinking and so we say we don't want any more of that renew our minds please we submit and we ask for you holy spirit to walk in take out the yuck thoughts and replace it with right thoughts And so we're submitting, Lord, our identity, our worth, our our fears, our depression, our uh, inability to change, our weakness, whatever it is that we have allowed the world to pummel us into the ground. And we say, only what you say, King Jesus, matters. So we submit our lives to you and we say, please remake us into your image. For in you there is freedom. In you, there is life and vitality. In you, there is power and strength and renewal. In you, there is revival. In you, there is newness. In you, there is reanimation. In you, there is all good things. And we say yes to those. You want all good things for us. Lord, we want to submit under your handiwork that we might be all good things that you anticipated for us. May we become what you designed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our prayer team is up here for you. Have a wonderful day.